You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to this, our year-end episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. And what a year it's been, William. Well, you say that. I suppose there was the odd, gigantic international crisis of China spy gates that didn't happen. And there might have been a product or two, but really, otherwise, hmm? no? Just a quiet one, huh? I thought so. Yes. Okay. So then then let's do this because it's it's been a big year, I think. What have been the biggest stories of the year for you? Let's let's just go quickly. You know, like uh in in 30 seconds, what do you think the biggest story was? Oh, the lack of an iMac. I keep coming back to that one. But anyway, um uh Bloomberg and the uh the grain of rice sized microprocessor added to the super micro boards that weren't that one. Yep. Uh, plus all the products. I was excited about the Mac Mini, for okay, example. Okay, so, so you are into international intrigue. Yeah, a little bit. Stories of spy and espionage and, and, and things that, of course, were complete fiction. Yes, I was just going to say that. Yes, I'm into the spy fiction. Yes. Okay. Actually, no, hang on. Let me just say this. To this minute, I am waiting for Bloomberg to actually prove stuff. Because a journalism app says something company uh, apple amazon all of these mentions of course they're going to deny it of course bloomberg is going to protect its sources but we're three months in every major international um intelligence agency is saying this isn't happening and bloomberg is just going what well, did so uh yeah i'm waiting for bloomberg to you know call it one way or the other uh, but at the moment it looks like so much baloney that um i find it offensive and if it were true, the companies would have a responsibility to disclose this kind of thing. Oh, yes, in, in so many ways. Um, uh, Bloomberg even claims that Apple did. Uh, everybody's picking on Apple, even though there were several other companies mentioned. Amazon, notably. Yes, and Amazon is pretty much the same as Apple. Uh, like, what? Eh? Uh, to be clear, Bloomberg says that there is this extra thing added to certain boards, certain motherboards in certain servers. Um, they don't have one to show us. They appear to have an artist's rendition of this. So, you know, stacking up the evidence here. Uh, right. The claim so is that after, what after they were saying, designed, right? these were added. Is that, yeah. well, what they're saying is that super micro motherboards. Yes. Which Apple's purchased, so has Amazon, so have others, for their servers. Because, you know, it doesn't make sense to purchase fancy Mac Pros for servers when there are completely suitable motherboards that are just stock generic boards that can run whatever software you run to run on them for servers. Sure. And, you know, this is what organizations do, right? Google runs a uh, on stock hardware that for years wasn't even in, in fancy cases or hard drives. They would just put motherboards on pieces of cardboard and have the hard drive sitting alongside them. And when a hard drive would die, they wouldn't even take it out of service. They'd just leave it there to die and add another one to the rack. I didn't know that. I knew they oh, were yeah. cheap. I didn't know. That's okay, that makes it, sense. It, it costs too much to diagnose yeah. when they could just throw more hardware at it. Right. Okay. And, you know, with, with, with Amazon and with Apple, they're both buying these motherboards and they'll, they'll run their whatever version of Linux or, or Unix or whatever else they need to run on. It doesn't make sense to rebuild OS ten for them completely since they're just running file services. They can secure their own distribution of Linux modified the way they need to yeah, be. Windows can do that. Yeah. A, well, you know, and, and that's a good question is what is Microsoft using for their Azure services? I, I would expect that they're also using some forms of Windows and some mix of Linux as well. But uh, th these are not th – these are common parts, right? And Apple buying them off the shelf says that 
the Bloomberg story says they're being modified after the fact, which is not easy to do unless you're replacing a chip and doing one in such a way that's part compatible. It's much easier to actually just burn new firmware to a chip than it is to replace a whole chip. Or to add one and all the circuitry to embed it in the rest of it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Even now, there, there were stories a few years ago of people like the NSA, National Security Administration, or GCHQ, GHCQ, modifying products, you know, cap taking capture of stuff in shipping process. You know, Amazon ships something to a customer before it gets to the customer. They seize it, they modify it, bug it, and then box it back up and send it the rest of the way. Are they more reliable than the Royal Mail? This is the real question. Surprisingly, <laughs> because mm. they actually want to get the surveillance from doing something like that. But, <laughs> but so, there, so there is some notion that some of this kind of espionage does happen. There's also the reverse accusation that the United States has made against people like Huawei, that Huawei bugs their products and then sells them into to places, which is why Huawei products are not allowed to be sold to the U.S. government, for example. Right. So there's a kernel of truth to this kind of story in the broadest of senses. But there is no this truth yes. to this uh, specific story uh, that we can determine. Say exactly right? that, yes. Did I get there for you? Okay. You what, did. what other stories do you think this year have really made 2018 a, a, a year that's distinguished or different from the years before? Well, I'm surprised actually when you visit my first word wasn't HomePod, because I remember at the start of the year, I suppose I just, I didn't think I could afford one at the time. And at the end of the year, I realized, no, I can't, but I bought one anyway. Uh, so but the HomePod for me was an end of 2018, but it's still 2018. And it's a, it's a lovely thing. Uh, I quite enjoyed Steve Wozniak being taken for uh, a scam in Bitcoin. I mean, I'm sorry for the guy, but it was still quite entertaining the way it was done. Um, well, tell us about that story if you're going to go ahead and recap it like that. Go, go ahead. Well, previously, uh, Steve Wozniak bought some Bitcoins uh, quite a while ago. I think he may have paid around a total of $75 for uh, seven that he then, these many years on, uh, went to sell them. And uh, he did sell them, and somebody paid for them using a credit card. Having paid for it, they then cancelled the credit card. Uh, so this brand new cryptocurrency was defeated by the old-fashioned credit card systems and uh, they got the bitcoins he didn't get his money uh, and he says actually i mean uh, he's still in favor of cryptocurrencies because of the fact that they should be free from interference free from all the old regulations uh, but in the the difference uh, however many years he had them the value did go up enormously um I'm not sure now that I was right about $75 because I've got a feeling what he actually lost was uh, something like $75,000 or the equivalent of if he'd been able to get it. Um, so I think that what I entertained me is that the parallel streams of uh, this brilliant new free currency being undermined by people being very clever at using the older technology that still underpins it. That's what I liked. That would have been about February, I think, by the way. You know, there's there's something about that story that doesn't quite add up in that normally when you, you transfer cryptocurrency, you transfer it from one wallet or digital wallet to another digital wallet. And so when he made that sale, he would have had to have transferred it to another wallet. Now, there's no way to unwind these transactions, which some people who are looking for consumer protections call a bug, but other people who are looking for a system of exchange that's unfettered by regulation and unfettered by monitoring and things like that, call that a feature in a way. Um, 
And then that's a philosophical difference about what a system of exchange should have or shouldn't have. Yeah. That's that's what this was really about is the idea of experimenting with what money is and what money could be in the future. And there are so many different competing cryptocurrencies because of that, because each one has their own idea of what distributed means or what decentralized means or what protections should be in place or not. And so he, he would have had to transfer these to a wallet and then accepted payment separately for them. And had he done it through an exchange, which is something like a, a sort of semi-centralized place where you put yours in and put theirs in and you, you make the trade through a site, then you get the funds because the exchange doesn't allow that to take place without the funds being paid for. And then they're responsible for dealing with the credit card being canceled or not. Um, it's a modern day equivalent of escrow. Kind of, except that it, it all takes place nearly instantaneously too. You know, that's, well, you that's, can't that's, expect Steve Wozniak, of all people, to know about any of that stuff. I mean, that's he's the downside of a Coinbase or something. That's, that's a Coinbase or a Mt. Gox or, or any one of these kinds of things acting as an exchange. And um, What was that last one? I don't know. Mt. Gox, that sounds... Mt. Gox, Klingon. yeah. So that, that one... So that one's another... This is where nerds have fun, right? So Magic the Gathering Online Exchange... Sorry, is, sorry, wait a minute. That sounded like Klingon, but now Magic the Gathering. This is Highlander. What's going on? Magic the Gathering online exchange was a site okay. founded by a fellow in Japan who created an exchange site for people to trade Magic the Gathering cards, assets. And then cryptocurrency became a thing, and he turned it into a cryptocurrency exchange site where people could trade the currency. Okay. And they they got scammed and went down and and... The uh, fellow who was running that has been arrested three or four times now by Japanese authorities, um, because you know basically they want they want their money back. People want money back out of it, and it's it's almost impossible at this point. But um, that was you know that was an exchange where people were able to trade these kinds of things, and and so is Coinbase and so are others. And if you're if you're doing these kinds of trades, there's some safety in using an exchange versus using just you know taking someone's credit card except what i don't understand is this if i want to sell bitcoins to somebody mm. I, I i don't want them to pay me back in bitcoins do i because then i might as well just keep well, what i've got think think about what you're really doing i mean what you want to do if you're selling bitcoins you're selling them so that you can get pounds in your case yes and so what you want to do is you want to sell your bitcoins to an exchange for pounds, they will give you pounds minus a fee, of course. And then the other party can go ahead and buy from the exchange and turn their pounds into bitcoins. Currency traders, man, currency traders are like this. this uh, uh, the quote from Steve Fawcett that I remember reading was that it was free of banks and things. Uh, but this sounds like banks under a different name. So is the new technology pretty much the same as the old technology? Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be that way, but that is one way of doing it. Now, obviously, I could take your money directly if you wanted to do that. If I had pounds and you had bitcoins and we wanted to trade, then we could go and exchange directly without anyone in the middle. But that would be somewhat more risky, right? So if you think of it like this, right, there's, there's currency trading at a big investment level. There oh. is currency trading... And at the, I need to go change currency at the kiosk because I'm a tourist kind of level. Yes. Right? Where that's, you're still dealing with a business whose business it is to exchange things for you. And then there's the level where 
um, you and I are both tourists and we happen to be walking along and, and going somewhere to eat and I've got dollars and you've got pounds and we need to pay in pounds. And so I ask you to kindly sell me some pounds for my dollars across the coffee table. And I don't just ping you with Apple Pay between our Apple watches, you know, like normal people. Right, right. So, there, but th that's what Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are still sort of discovering is what are the different transactions that people can have here? And, you know, the, the whole aspect of it is to be very decentralized and be very liberated and not rely on any central organization for this kind of stuff. What they're doing that makes it unique is that every transaction can be verified and is built off of the previous transactions. That's something called the blockchain. Oh, yes. Each transaction is a block and therefore you can't unwind transactions because you unwind everyone's transactions. But the, the, that, would be bad. Uh, that would be bad. But the other side of that is that everything is verifiable, which is good. Okay. Because it says that in, in a situation where you don't trust anyone, that you have all of these transaction history built upon it that can be verified. And okay. it's a little bit more complex than that because there's, there's basically, there are multiple nodes where everyone who's running a node is storing a copy of the blockchain. And so if, if you question a block, if you query a block, it not just queries yours, it also queries everyone else's nodes and they have to all come back in agreement. And if the majority agrees that that transaction took place, then that's verifiably that it did. Why? I sorry. I feel like I'm uh, as ever leading you down a technical tunnel here. But why wouldn't all of them agree? Why is it? I mean, well, if enough? if someone were trying to do something dastardly, like keep a second ledger, right? Cook the Surely books. Not. God. What in this new modern technology world that isn't in any way like the old one? Yes, if somebody were to do that, right? Um, so so someone could alter their copy of the blockchain. And oh right, but they couldn't get away with it because of all those pesky kids who've got their own copies. They can't as well. modify right. everyone else's. So yeah, if you wanted to do that, you'd have to have fifty-one percent of all of the servers and nodes under your control in order to be able to get away with a modified copy. Okay, challenge accepted um, and rejected. Right. All right. Okay. So let's move on. Let's move on because I don't want to talk all day about blockchain. I know no one else wants to listen either. So it's. It, I mean, th there's been a bunch of big things. You know, Qualcomm was a good story. I had a feeling somehow in my bones that you might uh, be interested in Qualcomm. Uh, we talked about this before on the podcast, and, and you know this story backwards. Where are we now, and when did it start? Oh, I, you know, I don't even want to get into when it started. But the, the short version is that Qualcomm makes chipsets. It's actually, if you want to go back to when it really started, go back to the iPhone 4. When the iPhone 4 had a new model introduced, midlife of the phone, and that new model supported Verizon. And that new model required a different modem chipset from Qualcomm in order to be able to support Verizon. And it actually had a slightly different form factor. The, the mute switch and volume keys moved around a little bit on that phone so that they had room to, to rearrange stuff inside there. And very unique situation because it's very rare that they would introduce midlife, a whole new model that's different internally yeah. and externally. And that was when they started doing business with Qualcomm for this modem chipset. And over time... What happened is that there was concern that they were taking that Qualcomm was demanding too much in terms of royalty payments, both from manufacturers and from Apple. And Apple doesn't like being pushed into a corner, so Apple began looking for other suppliers. Qualcomm didn't like that either. So there's been lawsuits going back and forth, and, and various ones. Right now, we're at a point where Qualcomm is seeking injunctions around the world to prevent Apple from selling iPhone. Oh, and has succeeded in Germany. 
I was just uh, as we record this, I was just hearing about that. Yeah. No iPhone seven and eight, I think it is in Germany. Yeah. Wow. And and you say, well, seven and eight, how does that hurt Apple? And the the answer is, it does because those are the affordable phones that Apple was continuing to sell. Yes, but there's also this thing, isn't there? Um, forgive me, I know this is where you know better than I do, but I've just heard this bit, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Qualcomm had to um, guarantee that should their legal challenge fail, they will pay Apple for the loss of income they would have had. So they've actually put in a billion dollars or something into, funnily enough, an escrow account ready for the courts to take if necessary. So, so Qualcomm is not exactly piddling about here. This is kind of a gutsy move, huh? Well, yes, it's, um, they're, they're rolling the hard six. It's a Hail Mary pass. I've been studying Americanisms, you see. I like all of these ones. <laughs> but that's what they're going for. Yes. Uh. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens here. At the same time, Apple has been hiring for the expertise required to make their own modems. And they've been hiring um, in Qualcomm's backyard. Okay, I feel unsurprised about that because Apple wants to do everything itself, and uh, and you can argue against that, but it's done very well for them in the past. So I'm not. I'm only surprised it's taken them this long to be building their own modems. Because when was the iPhone four? I can't even put a date on that, but sometime in the last eleven years. So yeah. Yeah. So that's the story there. And and basically what's going to happen is we're going to watch this court thing wind its way around. We're going to see if they get more injunctions or not. Yeah. It's it's going to be a big deal. It's going to be a bigger deal in about 2020 or so when Apple does do their own modem. That's my guess. That's my speculation for when this actually happens. You think that's um, how soon they'll be able to do their own modems? I think so. And the, the thing that I'm counting upon there, the reason that I'm really looking forward to that is that the Qualcomm modem, you know, like Qualcomm, don't like Qualcomm, the product gives faster data transfer on the LTE chipsets than the, uh, than the competing Intel part. If you have an Intel-based phone versus a Qualcomm phone, your speed tests will not be as fast. Right. Now, Will it be slow enough that you'll notice or be upset by it? Eh, maybe, maybe not. But but it's one of those things where once you know it, it's kind of irksome. And when they do their own, I fully expect that they'll get it right, that they won't have what this a, problem. Now, uh, of course, this, in the intervening time, 5G is also going to become a thing. And so speeds will be exponentially yeah. faster anyway. But uh, and, and of course, Qualcomm's been out boasting about how they're going to have 5G in every Android handset. So this is this is what we call an interesting moment in history. I'm sorry, my mind's split in two different directions there. One is 5G in every Android handset. Yeah, sure. Uh, but the other one is Apple goes from not making a modem at all to making a 5G one. Uh, to my mind, that seems like a very big move. But I suppose you can't really have baby steps with this. You either do it or you don't. Um, you confident that Apple will have a 5 g modem in 2020? Well, let me ask you, does it make sense in 2020 to make a 4G LTE modem? Could you ask me again in, a, in about in two years? Yeah, time? yeah. That would be good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But I will have the answer for you. Oh, yes. Yes. And anyway, when, when 2019 is going to have all of the major flagship Android handsets with a 5G chipset, you can have a phone that's an LTE handset in 2019, and it won't matter because it's still a transition year and towers are still going up and things like that. But in 2020, that's going to be a little harder to get away with. They could still do it, but it would be late. And I can't imagine them wanting to be late. They get it beaten up enough about all kinds of things that it doesn't make sense. They, they really, if they're going to do it, they, they really, really need to have a 5G chipset. Now, what they could do 
is they could buy in 5G for one more year from an Intel or one of those and then launch their own after that. Yeah, but Apple's always taking lumps for something. Um, so they are. So they are. Seems to ignore it until they're ready for things. Uh, speaking of taking lumps, or, right? Or discipline, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. speak, speaking of taking lumps, what about this 10R sales? Uh, yeah, you mean somebody's bought one. Is that... Well, pff, nice. But I mean, the, the concept that Apple must not be doing well in sales, that, that Apple must be slowing down in sales. That's been what all of the analysts have been saying, right? Yes, it is. But uh, they pick on the 10R this year. Last year, it was the iPhone 10 disaster. Uh, and nobody buying it at all, except they were. So ordinarily, I, I just kind of blank out this stuff. But you've pointed out to me that, uh, recently this issue of there being notifications sent, um, Apple basically selling stuff, plugging the iPhone XR. And that's the first time I actually thought, it smells like maybe there is an issue. It does. It but at the same time, you know, just, just anecdotally poking around and asking around, Everyone I can find, everyone I've talked to, says that when they try and go and buy an iPhone XR, they are sold out. Oh, well, that's good. That, that, you know, you go to a Verizon store, oh, we got a shipment in, and we're sold out. <laughs> that you, you, that you, if you wanted to find one, you would have difficulty. That it is not just walk up and get as many as you want, cheapest chips. They are in, in shorter supply. So that's the question. Is it possible that all these analysts have got their story wrong? Surely not. Perish the thought. I sometimes, I mean, I know this is this is this is wrong, but you some. I just sometimes wonder uh, whether analysts are talking stuff down and because they want to go buy Apple shares. I mean, I mean, is that just uh, conspiracy nutty of me? I don't know. But well, now if you say something like that, they have to disclose what their holdings are because otherwise, if they are doing that, they get in in huge trouble with the Securities Exchange Commission. All right. So I was not only wrong, I was bad there. They would I never mean, do anything like that. It is, it is a big deal to do that. Now, I have some Apple holdings. I have some small amounts of Apple holdings. Um, I don't pay attention to it. I really don't. I haven't sold or bought it in ages. Um, it just kind of sits there for me. So, you know, full, full disclosure, I have some shares, but I'm not telling anyone what to do with their shares. I'm not giving anyone advice about to go or buy or to go or sell. I'm not saying any of that. Would I'm you just, like me to look after the shares for you? Not at all. I'm, I'm content okay. with them staying exactly where they are and doing exactly whatever it is they're doing. I was just trying to help. I know. Myself. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I think I may have gotten a dividend check from them at some point and, and it just reinvests. So I, I, I think it's become a running joke now. Apple announces incredible sales figures. Stock price goes down because analysts are going, wow, this is terrible news. Uh, analysts are clearly looking at something else. And they're not looking at sales figures today. They're looking at what will happen next and things. And that doesn't seem unreasonable. It's just it never quite seems to work out even in the medium term. Isn't it that like uh, Tim Cook said at least once this year, I remember reading him saying uh, he finds it bizarre that people focus on the 90-day sales business when Apple is really looking many, many years ahead. Now, there's part of me that thinks that makes sense, but also Apple can afford. But that's the same ahead. thing that, that Jeff Bezos says, right? Jeff Bezos says that the results that are in this quarter were baked two years ago. Everything that's happening now is it was done two years ago, and that's what led us to this point. That he's focused on what's going on two years from this point. Again, a big company can reasonably afford to do this. I mean, I'm self-employed. I can't. Uh, 
I have to deal in the now where they yeah, can't. Yeah, and that's, so that's why like you're self-employed, William. Right. You're, because you're, you, because you got blinders on. Employed. You got blinders on. You, you're too focused at this one moment. You're not focused thinking ahead. And if I weren't, I'd be employed by somebody. I think I'll. Stick I didn't with say that part, but if, if that's how you feel about it. Okay. Anyway. It's a long time since I've been employed by somebody. I'm sure it's fun. Um, okay, so <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. What was the answer then? We don't know. That's we don't, we don't really know. Yeah. What, what else was a big story for you this year? What do you think? really open things up oh i love that you put it quite that way because siri shortcuts i mean i was a a workflow user before interesting yeah i love siri shortcuts are are you a a big user you know not a big user i i had been using them a while ago and before that i was using pythonista and really i i didn't take advantage of them in a big way i'm just looking at my shortcuts now i have about 30 Gracious. Uh, for things. Um, mind you, some of them are absolutely rubbish. But they, I just love it. There's one project I do where I need to account uh, for every article that was published. Um, and I could write it down. But instead, every couple of days, I tap the shortcut. It goes to the site, grabs the RSS feed, looks for what I wrote, what other people wrote, uh, sorts the stuff I did, and presents me in a nice little list that I email off to whoever it is. Handy. Um, Share that with that me. Sort of uh, what's it worth? I'll give it for you for uh, an Apple share or a Bitcoin or or something like that. Right. Yeah. We'll see about that. Anyway. What opened it up for you? What opened up the world in 2018 for you? I really think, and, and you're going to laugh at this, but I think the Apple Watch Series 4. Oh, grief, you're kidding. Why would I laugh at that? Uh, the only thing about I've got against that is I haven't got one. I really want one. It looks brilliant. What, what appeals to you? I think that it delivers on on sort of the promise of where things were going leading up to it. You know, we'd, we'd been talking for ages about healthcare and making healthcare personal, both through the Apple Health Records and the integration of actual health charts and lab tests and so forth into Apple Health, but also with the fitness and heart monitoring that we saw earlier and the diabetes monitoring. Those those were big deals. The idea that Series 4 takes that forward and can do the, uh, the, the echocardiogram and can actually record results into Apple Health, you know, it, it, it seems like that goes further, that where we're going to is, is a point where I think in the future, telehealth can be really enabled with these kinds of personal tests. Telemedicine is is one of those things where insurance companies are trying to push this now. You know, instead of having to go into a doctor, you can just call one of their doctors and get consult and get, you know, things, prescriptions sent out to the lab or, you know, prescriptions sent to the mail order pharmacy that then delivers it kind of thing. And I think it ties it together where if you have the test results on a device that you already have in your home that can be shared with the doctor practicing telemedicine, then it closes the loop. There's been a report in the last few days here in the UK, uh, a a study proving that um, some sort of uh, machine learning artificial intelligence is proving to be demonstrably regularly more effective at diagnosing uh, patients than doctors are. And part of me thinks that that's wonderful. No, actually, pretty much all of me does. I still want uh, a human being to interpret the data, but... I mean, that kind of news is not new. There was, for years uh, going on in Chicago, I I believe, I think I would remember it was Chicago. Um, You know, one of the things that happens is that when people come in 
to an emergency room with a potential heart condition, triaging them as immediately needing attention or being okay and can wait to, to be you know, taken in as a part of triage um, was a hard decision and that doctors would occasionally get it wrong or more than occasionally get it wrong. And so they implemented a flow chart. And if you followed the flow chart for the steps, then your accuracy went up and you detected heart conditions that needed attention immediately that would have otherwise gone undetected much faster with, with a higher accuracy rate. And, you know, that's the same kind of thing that could be done computerized as, as opposed to just following the flow chart that says do these things. And, you know, that's, that's where this kind of stuff comes from is that humans make errors and humans misread signs and humans weigh things and overlook them. Whereas if you just follow these, these steps and pick up on all of the signs and account for them properly, well, then you can diagnose with much higher accuracy. Someday NBC is going to reboot ER and it's going to be the dullest hospital drama ever. Just people watching screens and the odd bleep. Well, it's, I mean, it's 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 not going to have Noah Wiley and it's not going to have George Clooney and it's not going to, it's going to be more like Nurse um, Nurse Jackie. All right. Did you see um, that one? You didn't see I that I saw one. the pilot for Nurse Jackie and I liked it, but I don't remember seeing an awful lot of push notifications. And there was a pusher or two, I suppose. <laughs> I see your point there. <laughs> Uh, you found it. Now, one of the it, most exciting things for me this year is, by, is I met one of the writers of ER and he wrote uh, Love Labour's Lost, one of the most famous episodes of it. And I've read that script a couple of times over the years. I was, I was slightly in awe as I shook that guy's hand. Hmm. Incidents are inevitable and it comes down to how your company responds. Incidents require complex coordination between operations and software development teams who are the unsung heroes putting out fires every day. And getting alerts immediately is critical when incidents occurs, like we were just talking about. And that's why there's OpsGenie by Atlassian. OpsGenie empowers dev and ops teams to plan for service disruptions and stay in control during incidents, and it gives teams the power to respond quickly and efficiently to unplanned issues. Helps to notify all the right people through a smart combination of scheduling escalation paths that take into account things like time zones and holidays, and allows for deep flexibility in how, when, and where alerts are deployed, supported by over 200 integrations like Jira, Amazon CloudWatch, Datadog, New Relic, and more, and tracks all activity and provides useful insights to improve future incident responses. With OpsGenie, your exit doesn't stand a chance. Visit OpsGenie.com to sign up to get a free company account and add up to five team members. That's OpsGenie.com. Never miss a critical alert again with OpsGenie. You know, one of the things that I think really was, was big for me this year was the iOS 12. And I was going to say the, the iPhone XS and XS Max and XR, but I'm, I'm altering that and I'm saying iOS 12. Well, clearly, Siri shortcuts is part of iOS 12. So for me, that's the well. That's an add-on. That's uh, that's not really. Well, I also think it shouldn't be an add-on. I think it should be part of the system per se. But that for me, that dominates iOS 12. Uh, what is it about 12 that uh, so gets you? So this past week, I've had the experience of switching off my iPhone 6 and switching on an iPhone 10s Max 256 gig phone. Welcome and to the 10s Max world. You've joined us. Temporarily, okay. only temporarily. Oh. And what I'm seeing is just how good a job Apple did on iOS 12. You know, I was you using... You didn't have iOS 12 on your 6. Oh, I did, I did. And I encouraged you to get it, don't you recall? Yes, I just, it made it sound like you'd sent me out there into the wild and you hadn't followed. I'm right no, 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 you. no, 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 I... <laughs> no. I, I put it on my phone and was impressed with its performance. And... 
these these past few weeks, I've been a little bit bummed at it because it's been slower at some things or crashier, just a few things. But but mostly that's not the OS as much as it is the applications on the OS. Uh, you know, it it will reboot overnight basically, or occasionally reboot spontaneously. But for the most part, the phone is okay, and the speed of it comes down to Apple engineers having been issued the phone when they were developing iOS 12. And my hope is that those same engineers still use that phone when they're developing the updates for it. Because if they don't, then that phone is going to be left by the wayside again. But it really is is a good example of what Apple is going to do when they do things right, where they, they insist on developing as that as the target. Years and years ago, they had something called Apple Apple Compatibility Labs, and they maintained a lab of a huge number of machines, old and current. And as a developer, you could run your software in their compatibility lab and prove how it ran on all of those machines. They got rid of that a long time ago. And with phones, they don't do that. You're pretty much expected to maintain your own. But for the OS, it's really a good thing that they did this. And I hope that they continue this practice because the, the iPhone 6 and 6S are going to be supported for a while longer to come. And I, I really do believe they need to make sure that it runs as well as it does on those. Running it on 10s and 10s Max has been eye-opening for how smooth it is and how, how fluid it is, how responsive it is. But it's not that distant a cousin from the way it runs on the 6. And I, I think they, as much as they know that iOS is the crown jewel of their properties at the moment, they need to keep they need to keep that in mind and protect it. And I think they lost that plot with iOS 11. And, and that's why iOS 12 is so important. I've realized for some reason you're saying that I, I, once you've moved on to a new iOS, I think after a while you forget what you didn't have before. Uh, and for some reason, something they said reminded me of this glorious feature in iOS 12 uh, to do with passwords. Um, I mean, I'm a one password user. So if I go to a site uh, on my phone, Face ID opens it up, it will offer me a password from iCloud Keychain or one password and just squirts it in straight away. I rarely have to open one password now. And it's not like it was a burden to, but the smoothness of that, I mean, all these months in, it's the one thing of iOS 12 where I still go, oh, every time it happens. Well, and it's not that, it's also the speed with which you're doing it on that new handset. It switches to the one password uses Face ID to unlock it, and gives you that password for the correct thing very quickly. The old routine uh, using iOS 12 on an older handset is it takes some time to switch the application, then it takes some time to register Touch ID, and then it gives you that. It's a lot more uh, like molasses. Stone Age, I know. Well, you just went for glasses. I went for Stone Age. Yes. Uh, what do you think of Face ID um, while you're using the XS Max? You know, I, I like it very much, but it doesn't work as well for me as I'd hoped off-axis or in the dark. It does do it, but it's it's there are times when I have to pick up the phone and re-aim it. Well, I, I, I'm fine in the dark, but um, I've noticed that. I think I'm very conscious of the fact that the new iPads can look at you from any angle. Uh, I am aware that I'm having to... Uh, it's usually when I'm in the car and I put the phone... Uh, into its holder uh, landscape uh, to do Apple Maps on it and stuff. And I haven't got ready before the thing switches off and I don't have to take it off or twist my head at a funny angle. So I'm hoping next year, well, actually, no, I'm not because I can't afford to buy another phone, but <laughs> I'm hoping the next time I can get an iPhone, it'll be like the iPad and recognize me. Oh, and the everywhere. other thing is uh, is connecting it to CarPlay. 
So connecting the iPhone 6 to CarPlay takes a while. You see a black CarPlay screen loading on the phone, and then it, it connects eventually. Plugging this thing into the CarPlay? I've like that. So fast. I, I so understand fast. what it does, but um, uh, you obviously like CarPlay. What, what is uh, Getting off point again, sorry, but um, what do you use CarPlay for? Uh, CarPlay is for maps. It's for in-car entertainment. It's for receiving text messages and answering them. All right. I just get Siri to read out my text messages. Yeah, so do I, through the dashboard. Little little notification at the top of the CarPlay screen pops down saying, William texted this, or William sent an iMessage. And you tap on it, and it reads it aloud and asks if you'd like to reply. Actually, is that this is coming back to iOS 12, because the thing I really like is, uh, I think, didn't this come in at 11? They do not disturb while driving thing. Uh, yeah, I never I tried that. Weirdly... Um, <laughs> Uh, inconsistent. Uh, it always seems to be the messages that I don't want to get, you know, the ones where uh, I've got to respond right now, but I'm driving for another hour. Those get through, but others don't. So uh, there's obviously a setting somewhere, a, a meanness filter yeah. somewhere in the settings preferences. Well, I don't want to go on for too much longer. So what is the last thing you'd like to, to leave our listeners with for the year? Oh. This is it. We're closing out 2018. And I want to thank everyone, by the way, who reached out about my comments on batteries and, and having Jason Applebaum on the show. And if there are more experts you'd like to have on, feel free to recommend them or feel free to recommend topics that you'd like us to find experts for. And we will do that. I, I really appreciate that. That was some good feedback from you guys. I love that you do that, by the way. It's so interesting when you get these people on. Um, I... I there's so much to say about 2018, and there are things I'm looking forward to in 2019, but the one that just pops into my head is is a slightly silly one. Um, do you remember back in March, people were reporting that the Amazon Echo would suddenly laugh at them? That I do recall that, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's gone on since. Uh, um, uh, other Amazon Echoes have sent audio recordings of conversations to other people, uh, in some cases, a lot of these conversations. And it's always traced back down to a misheard uh, command, but still, there's something intriguing about that to me. And so far, my HomePod hasn't betrayed me in that way at all. Speaking of betrayal, in, in Europe, you have this thing called GDPR. Okay. Yes, and and one of the things that it allows you to do is ask companies to share the information they've collected on you with the person, right? Yes. You can say, yes. hey, give me all the information you've got on me so that I can review it. And what happens, do you think, when you ask Amazon for that? Oh, I don't know. Uh, Apple gives it to you. What does Amazon do? Well, a Amazon responds to the request by giving you someone else's information. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> really? <laughs> Like 1.7 gigabytes worth of stuff from an entirely different person. Okay. I did recently Oops. have a company <laughs> send me um, an invoice for something I bought in 2013. Yeah. And when I asked them about it, it turns out it was human error. Another user with my name was having trouble retrieving their license code or something yeah. so to help him. They've done this. So uh, I love all this technology, and it comes down to well, – this, this is like the Bitcoin stuff, isn't it? You have all of this fantastic technology. It is the future. But behind it, there are some clever or some slightly distracted people doing things. Yeah. Human beings defeating technology. Right. Oh, yes. But it should never be the case that you get audio recordings of another user. You, you should never, never be in that situation where you get the actual audio of someone else's Amazon Echo. I can't imagine any circumstance in which that would be in any way a problem or embarrassing. Not yes. at all, no. Yeah. Also, I don't have any Amazon products in the bedroom. 
because my goodness, can you imagine what happens when that user gets that 1.7 gig of that other user's stuff? It's just disastrous. It really right. is. Can I just distance myself here? I didn't leak to the bedroom with this at all. You did. So you're out there on your own uh, with this one. Uh, you're the one who wanted to replace your HomePod with the uh, Echo for Angela. No, uh, Angela's been given an Echo as a, a late mm -hmm. birthday present. And I was very happy uh. to hear that because I can steal my HomePod back. Yeah, right. Very different. Same words, different sequence. Something oh. like that. Anyway, we will be back in 2019. I have loved having you here joining us for this time. And, and seriously, please let us know who you want to hear from. And I, I, you know, for all the talk that we give about Apple being doomed or Apple not doing the right things or what these analysts are saying, there's, there's tons of room for Apple to improve. At the same time, there are a number of things they've done right. And so that's why we're in this tug, uh, that, that's this push-pull relationship with them of things that we like and things that we want them to get better at. And, and the reason that we criticize Apple is because we want them to get better at them. I, I'm very optimistic about things like health and watch and where that goes. I, you know, I keep hoping that they'll let iPad become a real computing platform. And of course, there are people that say it is a real computing platform, and they're, they're all right also. It comes down to uses. Um, you know, the, the keyboard debacles, the battery debacles, the, the Marzipan apps on Mac OS, all of these things are worthy things to criticize. But I have to believe and I have to hope that they're all going to get better and continue to improve. William? Uh, I'm just stunned into silence there because I am one of those iPad uh, users who considers it a real computing device. In fact, uh, my iPad is next to me. Now, I think I said this to you before, in the three years, whatever it is, since I had, since I first bought the 12.9, I doubt there's been a day that I haven't run the battery down to zero uh, through working on it. Yeah. Um, this is a, a major part of my workflow, even though um, I'm frankly besotted with my, I, my betraying me iMac. Mm. Yeah. Well, don't bend your iPad. <laughs> okay. I have a very good go not to. Yes. You know, we talked about that the last episode where, uh, where, where you know, it, it, if you've got one, take it back get one that's not bent. But I was a little upset with the Dan Riccio statement. So there's there's a VP at Apple named Dan Riccio who issued a statement saying that there's not a defect, that they allow for a 0.4 millimeter tolerance of bend. And that, it feels a little bit insulting. I mean, I understand that they have design tolerances and engineering tolerances and things like that. But to be able to say this is not a defect, I understand why they're saying that. They're saying that so they don't have to take anything back. But at the same time, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes, right? It's, it's clearly it's bent. Right. It's clearly bent. If you put it down on a flat table and it rocks, it's bent. And this is not the first time Apple's ever had to deal with a situation like this. If you go back to the old power books, the aluminum power books, they warped and they rocked on tables and people complained. I did not know that. Why? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this oh, is, right. this I is love something. I power books. I, okay. Uh, so in that case, that's very frustrating. what you're saying is, it's never going to get any better. There's always going to be something like this. And uh, after such a cheery end, you know, you've now made 2019 seem a little bit more miserable. Well, Apple is not it. one thing. Apple is a multitude of things. Apple, Apple makes a multitude of products, and Apple gets many things right at the same time as getting some things wrong. And, and that's all we can do is, is try and, in our small way, hold their feet to the fire. Whilst giving them quite a lot of money for individual devices that, frankly, are worth it every time. Yes, I agree. Something like that. We will be back in 2019. When we do, we will be at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. And 
We'll be reporting on all kinds of weird and wonderful things, some of which will actually come and get released. Some will see the light of day. We will be back then. Thank you so much. Give us your feedback. Email william at appleinsider.com or victor at appleinsider.com. I'm VMarks on Twitter. William, your W. Gallagher on Twitter. Very good. Thank you for saying that. And we will see you in the new year. <laughs>